Hey everybody, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Again, where I've been teaching A&P at Bucks County Community College since 2002. Today's episode, I don't have a guest. It's just you and me, and I'm going to focus on content. So this week, we're continuing on with the endocrine system. We're not through it yet, and we're not going to be through it today. But I want to focus on two very clinically significant endocrine glands, and that is the pancreas and the adrenal glands. Now, the pancreas, I know, is not a pure endocrine gland because it also has exocrine function for the digestive system. But we're going to focus on its endocrine function today because insulin and glucagon are massively clinically significant hormones because we're talking about one of the top five most common diseases in the United States and the world, diabetes. So we're going to hit the pancreas, then we're going to get the the adrenal gland going, and then we're going to be done. But I think this is really important, so hopefully uh, it'll help you. You pay really close attention because the details in these hormones are important, and you're probably going to see them on your exams Or if you just want to really understand what these hormones do and you're not taking any tests, these are pretty big ones. We have a lot of our healthcare system dedicated to the treatment of diabetes, as well as some diseases associated with the adrenal glands, like Addison's disease and Cushing's disease. Those are big ones too. So we're going to get into it. We're going to go right to the content and then we're going to be done. And I hope it helps you out. Let's talk about the anatomy of the pancreas before we get into its function. The pancreas is retroperitoneal. It is inferior to the diaphragm and deeper than the stomach. It has a head which is tucked into the crook of the first part of the small intestine, which is called the duodenum, and then it has a long tail that continues all the way out toward the left lateral side of the abdominal cavity. It's kind of lobular with a lot of granular type of appearance to it, and it has two distinct parts. It is both an endocrine gland and an exocrine gland. So much of the pancreas is dedicated to producing digestive enzymes that are then deposited into the small intestine so that we can help break down fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. It's also an endocrine gland. It has other parts of it, histology, that are dedicated to the endocrine system. So we're going to focus on the endocrine functions of the pancreas in this episode. And histologically, the regions of the pancreas that are dedicated to the endocrine system are called the pancreatic islets. The pancreatic islets consist of four different types of cells. The alpha cells, the beta cells, the delta cells, and the pancreatic polypeptide cells. We're going to focus on the alpha and beta cells for the most part because those are the ones that secrete glucagon and insulin. Glucagon is responsible for raising your blood sugar and insulin is responsible for lowering your blood sugar. The delta cells secrete somatostatin which is growth hormone inhibiting hormone. You might remember that from our hypothalamus and pituitary discussion. We're going to specifically focus on, again, the alpha and beta cells because those are the ones that are very much working toward regulating your blood sugar. 
So remember that insulin and glucagon are both water-soluble hormones, and they play crucial roles in regulating blood glucose levels in the body, primarily by controlling the levels of glucose in the blood. We're going to start off with insulin. Insulin is produced by the beta cells of the pancreatic islets. When blood sugar levels rise, such as after eating a meal, the pancreas releases insulin into the bloodstream. Insulin targets muscle, fat, and liver cells and makes them absorb glucose from the bloodstream to lower your blood sugar levels. In muscle and fat cells, insulin promotes the uptake of glucose and its conversion into glycogen. Glycogen is a starch and is the storage form of glucose. In the liver, insulin inhibits the release of glucose and stimulates the synthesis of glycogen from excess glucose, which is then stored for later use. Additionally, insulin plays a role in promoting the uptake of amino acids into cells, promoting protein synthesis, and inhibiting the breakdown of stored fats. So let's talk a little bit about how insulin works with its target cells. Insulin stimulates a cell by binding to a specific insulin receptor on the cell's surface and triggering a series of intracellular signaling events. The first one is insulin binding. The insulin molecules circulate in the bloodstream until they encounter target cells such as muscle, fat, and liver cells, or hepatocytes. When insulin binds to its receptor on the cell membrane, it induces a conformational change in the receptor, meaning the receptor changes shape. That conformational change in the receptor activates its intrinsic tyrosine kinase activity, which is an enzyme. Tyrosine kinases add phosphate groups to tyrosine residues on proteins, initiating signaling cascades. Those signaling cascades eventually lead to an increase in glucose uptake and metabolism, mainly by adding the number of GLUT proteins, or glucose transporter proteins, from intracellular storage into the cell's membrane. This process increases the cell's capacity to take up glucose from the bloodstream. Once inside the cell, glucose can undergo metabolism and produce ATP, or it can be stored as glycogen. Insulin signaling also promotes various anabolic processes within the cell, meaning that they're building structures up, including protein synthesis, lipid synthesis, and glycogen synthesis. These processes are crucial for cell growth, cell repair, and energy storage. Overall, insulin stimulation of a cell enhances glucose uptake, utilization, and storage while also promoting anabolic processes that support cellular function and growth. This coordinated response ensures that cells efficiently respond to changes in blood glucose levels and can maintain energy balance within the body. So we talked a little bit about the GLUT proteins or the glucose transporter proteins, and I think it's important to discuss and also to review how glucose enters a cell through the plasma membrane. If you recall from way back in my earlier episodes when I talked about the cell itself and membrane transport, you'll remember that glucose crosses the plasma membrane through facilitated diffusion. And facilitated diffusion is when a carrier protein is utilized to allow a solute to travel down its concentration gradient and cross the cell membrane. In this particular case, that membrane protein, that transporter protein, is a glucose transporter protein or a GLUT protein. 
and they're embedded in the cell membrane. And remember, insulin increases the number of glute proteins that are in the plasma membrane, which is why we become more susceptible to bringing glucose into the cell when we have insulin present. So here's how it works. The glute proteins are integrated into the membrane, and when they come in contact with glucose and bind glucose on the extracellular side, that protein is going to undergo a conformational change. As a result of the conformational change, the glute protein creates a pathway for glucose molecules to move across the hydrophobic bilayer. So what's going to happen is that change is going to ultimately result in the glucose being released into the cytosol. The direction of glucose transport depends on the concentration gradient because it is diffusion. So if the concentration of glucose is high on the outside of the cell, then the net movement of glucose will be into the cell. And that's what happens in most cases. Glucose is moving down its concentration gradient from the area of higher concentration to the area of lower concentration. Now remember that the activity of glute proteins can be regulated in response to various factors including insulin levels, cellular energy status, and hormonal signals. For example, insulin promotes the translocation of specific glute proteins into the cell membrane, like we discussed earlier. Overall, facilitated diffusion through glute proteins allows glucose to move across the plasma membrane, ensuring that cells have a constant supply of glucose for energy metabolism and other cellular processes. Remember that we need glucose to make ATP. With oxygen in the area, we can make a lot of ATP from one molecule of glucose. Now, the alpha cells of the pancreatic islet produce glucagon. Glucagon uses a second messenger system to affect its target cells, and its second messenger is cyclic AMP. Now, you can review in episode 34 how second messenger systems work, and so if you want to brush up on that, go back and listen to episode 34 again, but I'm not going to rehash it here. Glucagon acts in opposition to insulin. It does the opposite. When blood sugar levels drop, such as between meals or during fasting, the pancreas releases glucagon. Glucagon signals the liver to break down glycogen into glucose and release it into the bloodstream, and that's going to raise your blood sugar. It also stimulates gluconeogenesis, which is a process where the liver produces glucose from non-carbohydrate sources such as amino acids and glycerol. So think of the word gluconeogenesis, gluco for glucose, neo for new, and genesis to create. So we create new glucose from amino acids and glycerol. Glycerol we can free up from fats, from lipids. Glucagon can also promote the breakdown of stored fats into fatty acids and glycerol, providing an alternative energy source when glucose levels are low. So if we're thinking about the pancreas and we're talking about blood sugar regulation and its endocrine function, remember that together... Insulin and glucagon work in concert to maintain blood sugar levels within a narrow range, a process known as glucose homeostasis. They help ensure that cells receive a steady supply of glucose for energy while preventing blood sugar levels from becoming too high or too low, which can have detrimental effects on health. Dysregulation of insulin and glucagon secretion or function can lead to conditions such as diabetes mellitus. Now, I'm sure you've heard of diabetes mellitus, and you might just be calling it diabetes. But diabetes mellitus is a difficulty 
But diabetes mellitus is when you cannot regulate your blood sugar. There's a couple of different kinds. There's type 1 diabetes mellitus, which is the one that is entirely genetic. It means that your body is not producing insulin properly. So it's a genetic trait that on your DNA, you don't have the gene that codes for the correct production of the proteins that form insulin. So you cannot get your blood sugar down. That's type 1. Type 2 can be genetic, but it can also be based on what we call modifiable risk factors, like uh, being overweight, not exercising, smoking, uh, things like that can cause diabetes type 2. Type 2 diabetes mellitus is where you don't have the proper insulin receptors. So it's not the insulin that's a problem, it's the receptors that are a problem. And you're still getting the same result because you can't bring the glucose from the bloodstream into the cell without the insulin receptors. Now, type 2 diabetes can be reversible if it's not entirely genetic. So exercise tends to help. Uh, diet tends to help. Lowering your, your simple carbohydrates, your, your, your sugars, can help with type 2 diabetes. All right, so now let's get into the adrenal glands. The adrenal glands are bilateral. There's two of them. And they're also known as the suprarenal glands because they're found just superior to the kidneys. The adrenal glands are kind of like two glands. There is an outer shell cortex and there is an inner central portion called the medulla. So the adrenal medulla, which is only about 10 to 20 percent of the volume of the gland, is in the inside. That's the inner core. And the adrenal cortex, which is about 80 to 90 percent of the volume of the gland, are surrounding the medulla. Let's talk about the cortex first. Histologically, the cortex is divided into three zones. The outermost zone, called the zona glomerulosa. The next deepest, the zona fasciculata. And the deepest zone of the adrenal cortex, the zona reticularis. The glomerulosa is a thin layer. It's, again, the most superficial layer. And it is where we get the hormones called mineralocorticoids, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. The zona fasciculata is where we get glucocorticoids and androgens, which we're also going to talk about. And that is a layer that is just deep to the glomerulosa. And the zona reticularis also secretes glucocorticoids and androgens, and that is the deepest layer of the adrenal cortex. So let's talk about the hormones of the adrenal cortex. The cortex secretes steroid hormones, and we call these specifically corticosteroids or corticoids uh, because of the cortex being their source. These hormones are essential for various physiological functions in the body, and they differ depending on which part of the cortex they come from. So let's start with the mineralocorticoids. The primary mineralocorticoid produced by the adrenal cortex is called aldosterone. You might have heard me mention that one in the past. It plays a crucial role in regulating electrolyte balance, particularly sodium and potassium ions, in the body. It acts on the kidneys to increase the reabsorption of sodium ions and the excretion of potassium ions, thereby regulating blood pressure and blood volume. If we reabsorb sodium ions, then the osmotic gradient that produces 
will cause us to also obligate water and retain water. So aldosterone can increase your blood pressure by causing you to retain water and keep it in your blood plasma, which then increases blood volume. The glucocorticoids are coming from the fasciculata and reticularis. And the main glucocorticoid is called cortisol, which I'm sure you've heard of. Cortisol is involved in regulating metabolism, the immune response, and the stress response. It promotes gluconeogenesis, which we talked about earlier. It inhibits glucose uptake in peripheral tissues, thereby increasing blood sugar levels. Cortisol also has an anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive effect, helping the body respond to stress and regulate the immune system. So the anti-inflammatory aspect of it is why you hear about people using things like hydrocortisone or cortisone as a therapeutic drug to decrease inflammation. But also because it has immunosuppressive effects, what happens is that those people taking those for long-term periods are going to be more susceptible to illness because their immune system is depressed. The other class of hormones from the adrenal cortex is the androgens. And only a small amount of these are produced, including one called DHEA and another one called androstenedione. DHEA stands for dehydroepiandrosterone. Androgens are primarily associated with the biological male sex hormones, but they are also present in biological females, and they play roles in the development of secondary sexual characteristics and also sex drive or libido. The hormones of the adrenal cortex are primarily regulated by the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or the HPA axis, which is a complex feedback system involving the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the adrenal glands. You will remember from previous episodes that the release of adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH, from the pituitary gland targets the adrenal cortex and stimulates it to release corticosteroids. However, ACTH from the pituitary gland is regulated by hormones from the hypothalamus, corticotropin-releasing hormone, for example, CRH. When CRH comes from the hypothalamus to the pituitary, it stimulates ACTH production, which then goes to the adrenal cortex and stimulates glucocorticoid production. These feedback mechanisms help maintain appropriate levels of these hormones in the body to support normal physiological functions and respond to stressors. Stressors could be anything from emotional stress to physical stress, mental stress, all of those, an injury, having surgery, any of those is a stressor, and your body needs cortisol to respond to that. If the adrenal cortex hormones are not functioning properly, Various different diseases and disorders can take place, specifically two of the most common, Addison's disease, which is a low adrenal cortex function or hypofunction, and Cushing's syndrome, which is hyperfunction, too much cortisol. Let's talk about Addison's disease for a second. Addison's disease is also known as primary adrenal insufficiency. It occurs when the adrenal glands fail to produce enough cortisol and, in some cases, aldosterone. The signs and symptoms of Addison's disease can vary, but they include chronic fatigue, weight loss that's unintentional, hyperpigmentation, so the skin can actually get darker, especially in sun-exposed areas and areas of friction, 
That is classic Addison's disease, by the way. That hyperpigmentation results from increased production of melanin stimulated by elevated levels of adrenocorticotropic hormone. You could notice salt cravings due to the aldosterone deficiency because now you're not reabsorbing as much sodium as you need to. Low blood pressure, again, from aldosterone. You're not keeping your blood volume up, so you're not keeping your blood pressure up. Gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, muscle and joint pain, hypoglycemia, your blood sugar's too low, mood changes like depression, irritability, difficulty coping with stress, right? That makes sense. And menstrual irregularities. Women may experience irregular menstrual periods or the absence of menstruation altogether, which we call amenorrhea. Addison's disease can develop gradually, and it may be kind of nonspecific, often resembling other medical conditions. So sometimes it's misdiagnosed or it takes a while to diagnose it because of that. And the symptoms can worsen during times of physical or emotional stress, which is an important thing to notice. The next one is Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome, and it's also known as hypercortisolism. It's a condition characterized by excessive production of cortisol by the adrenal glands or prolonged exposure to high levels of cortisol. Again, the signs and symptoms can vary with Cushing's as well, but commonly you're going to find weight gain. Uh, weight gain is rapid and significant, uh, particularly around the abdomen and the face and the upper back, like, like, like you're getting a hump in your upper back. Those are classic Cushing's disease signs. Uh, central obesity, accumulation of fat in the trunk, face, and neck, while the arms and legs remain kind of thin. That's another one that's pretty classic. Thin skin, the skin could become thin and fragile, making it more susceptible to bruising, stretch marks, and, and wounds tend to heal a little bit more slowly than normal. A thin reddish-purple stretch marks. High blood pressure or hypertension, which makes sense. Muscle weakness, osteoporosis. You can have decrease in bone density from prolonged exposures to high cortisol levels. Glucose intolerance and diabetes could be a result. You could get uh, insulin resistance and impaired glucose tolerance, which will lead to high blood sugar levels and an increased risk of developing diabetes mellitus. Fatigue and weakness, emotional changes, mood swings, Menstrual irregularities, again, there's another one, and decreased sex drive or libido. Cushing's disease is another one that can develop gradually. It can often resemble other medical conditions, so it's important to keep on top of it and to make sure that you're getting, you get tested if you really think that you have something like this. Finally, we're going to talk about the adrenal medulla, which is the innermost part of the adrenal glands. The two main hormones of the adrenal medulla are epinephrine and norepinephrine, which we also call adrenaline and noradrenaline, respectively. They are part of the body's stress response system, and they play crucial roles in preparing the body to cope with stressful situations. Um, you might remember them from the autonomic nervous system when we talked about the sympathetic division. These are the fight-or-flight hormones. So that's basically what we're dealing with. So we're going to see increases in heart rate and blood pressure. We're going to see a dilation of the airway, so we're going to have an increased respiratory rate. Glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis. We want to free up ATP. We want to get some energy, so we're going to break down our glycogen and we're going to make glucose. Epinephrine stimulates the breakdown of glycogen and dilation of pupils. So these are all effects of epinephrine. 
This is our fight or flight response. It's classic, and we talked about it in the autonomic nervous system. Norepinephrine is sympathetic nervous division activation. So norepinephrine is both a hormone and a neurotransmitter playing a central role in the activation of the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. It works in conjunction with epinephrine to initiate that fight-or-flight response. It's going to result in vasoconstriction, so it's going to act on blood vessels to make the blood vessels narrower, particularly in the skin, the gastrointestinal tract, and the kidneys. That's going to redirect blood flow to vital organs like the brain, the heart, the muscles, to help maintain blood pressure to those areas to support the physical activity needed in the fight-or-flight response. It's also going to be involved in enhancing alertness, arousal, and vigilance, promoting a state of heightened awareness and readiness to respond to threats or challenges. And finally, it's going to be implicated in the regulation of mood, emotions, and cognitive function. Imbalances in norepinephrine levels have been associated with mood disorders such as depression and anxiety. So overall, these hormones of the adrenal medulla epinephrine and norepinephrine, they play essential roles in orchestrating the body's physiological response to stress, ensuring rapid mobilization of energy and resources to cope with threatening situations. All right, so that's a decent amount for this episode, the pancreas and the adrenal glands. So hopefully you get a better understanding for what these organs do. Remember, the pancreas is both an endocrine and an exocrine gland, but we're going to hold off on the exocrine stuff until we get to the digestive system. But these are big players in the endocrine system. These hormones, they are responsible for so many important things that are happening in your body and regulating so many important processes and controlled conditions in your body. So I hope that the information that you got from here is going to help you do better on your exams and get that B or better that you need in A&P. And I look forward to the next episode when we continue on with the last endocrine episode, and we'll clean up with some other real primary, um, important clinically significant hormones and uh, glands, and then we'll finish up the endocrine system so we can move on to the circulatory system, which is going to probably take a slew of episodes to get through. So good luck, be well, and I'll talk to you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities.